Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Here we are. Ah, here we are, here we are, after a bit of a hiatus. We were in London. You were, across the pond. Uh Uh-huh. And didn't know this until we got there, but we got there just in advance of the Jubilee, the Diamond (gasps) Jubilee. The Queen's Jubilee, but she didn't show up, right? She didn't show up. And neither did we, because we left town beforehand. We kept calling it the Jube, and no one responded well to that. (laughs) Apparently, you don't abbreviate it. So that was wild to... Just sort of every block, there would be a number of storefronts that would have corgis in them or pictures of the queen or crowns or mm-hmm. or some some iconography of Queen Elizabeth. But the freakiest thing was being on these major boulevards and looking all the way down the boulevard and hanging from the lampstands all the way down would be these huge British flags. Yeah. One after another, after another, after another. And it really gave you this strong sense of, like, oh, this is what it feels like when you're the inhabitant of some random country throughout the course of British imperialism. And they roll in and they're like, we're hanging a bunch of flags now. And you just look around and you're like, what? what I mean, this, is, this, this was London. So, you know, it's home turf for them. But you could get yeah. that real strong sense of, of the strangeness of, oh, they just hang flags everywhere. Oh, yeah. If sun never sets. The sun never sets. Yeah, sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, now it does. All over. I mean, it's yeah. pretty much. They got a lot of. They got a lot of nighttime in the British yeah. Empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, that's funny you bring that up because you know it's sort of like a vestige of human civilization. The, this idea of the imperial monarchy specifically, and you know, because we're we're humans, we're evolving, right? We're evolving into the future constantly. Our cells are breaking down, we're building new ones, and we're just sort of living in this very dynamic illusion of a constant state, right, of, of matter. And um, along with that kind of never-ending procession, we bring along with us a few things, right? So today we're going to talk about a stowaway on your own human body that you may not be aware of. And then later, we're going to be talking about where our own evolution may be heading some wild tales of adaptation yeah so first question brandon yes how does your face feel great uncolonized (laughs) there's no empires living on my face no flags no corgis yeah our first story actually has to do with uh the fact that your face is actually not alone it is in fact very colonized did you know that no, I thought the otherwise. I mean, I thought maybe there would be some some travelers, you know, like the Australians are always all over the place during the summer. Mm-hmm. You always, anywhere you travel, you're going to see some <laughs> friendly Australians. I assumed that microorganisms yeah. were kind of the same way. Yeah. Uh, that in Canadians too, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Remember back in the day when during like the height of the bush years when you were backpacking? Some Americans would put like the Canadian patch on their backpacks and no oh, would yeah. mess with them. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't know if that happens anymore. And it's like, shit's like way worse than it ever was. Anyways, yeah. I digress. Your face, it's not alone. It is actually colonized with tens of thousands of tiny mites. Hmm. This mite, it's called Demodex follicularum. It spends its entire life living inside of your pores. Okay. So they feed on the oil produced by our skin and bodies. And then at night, they venture out looking to find mates, okay? And then they make love. Oh, boy. And uh, then they uh, lay their eggs right there. Right there being on our face. 
right there in your face, in actually. Scientists. Um, yeah. So uh, the numbers may shock you. More than 90% of us uh, are host at some point, you know, during our lives to these 0.3 millimeter long mites. They usually live around your nose and your eyelashes. And again, when you go to bed tonight, just remember that that's when these mites sort of really become animated and they start moving and crawling and sort of having sex all over your face. Mm, cool. All right. So they really are waiting for the sun to set to become yes. excited. Exactly. So they're waiting for the nighttime because that is the right time for Demodex folliculorum. These guys, they're, uh, they got four pairs of stubby little legs, a little pair of claws, kind of a worm-like body. Uh, so these researchers, for the first time, analyzed the genome of these mites, and uh, they found out that they have the smallest number of functional genes out of any arthropod, and that includes insects, arachnids, and crustaceans. And the reason for that is that these these little industrious critters have been living on our bodies for so long that they've begun to lose some of their own signature functions and body parts. Right. They're losing the instructions for doing their own stuff because they're freeloading. Exactly. So they, they've been living high on the hog inside of our pores so long that they're becoming more and more irrecognizable uh, from the animals they once were, okay? So this is kind of problematic for them, actually, because that means that they're slowly changing from being an external parasite to human beings to an internal symbiont, which means that it's going to be entirely dependent upon us for its existence. So unfortunately for them, now that they're ride or die with the humans, if we go extinct, so do they. And, you know, if you take one look at the ecological or geopolitical landscape, these guys may have bet on the wrong horse. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Cockroaches. Cockroaches. That's who you'd want to be a parasite on. So you may be asking, what's the deal? Are, are these things good? Are they bad? Are they meh? Well, eh, like all things, eh, they're good meh. In some cases, they are the cause for rosacea or a specific type of rosacea called demodex rosacea. They uh, can be the cause of certain types of alopecia. They can be carriers of bacteria. But at the same time, these follicle mites may also play a role in like defending the skin against certain pathogenic bacteria, including types of staph and types of strep. So there are theories of other benefits they may bring. For one, um, doctors believe that they may be cleaning out our pores, and that's also beneficial to us. So it's good and bad. It, it's also, you know, good luck sleeping tonight, knowing about all the critters on your face kind of thing. But it brings into question this idea of us sort of evolving in general. And what's the weird stuff that sort of evolves with us that we don't even know about? Like, I had no idea that, that these things have been living with me like most of my life. It reminds me of if you look way back in the early days when it was just a bunch of single-celled animals floating around in the primordial soup, mm -hmm. and one would do digesting of things, and another one could capture stuff. Mm -hmm. So maybe one of the bigger cells floating around would be like, hey, this one grabs stuff well. I'm going to hold on to it, use it as a tool to grab stuff, pull it into my mouth pore, and then I'll digest it that way. And in that early stage, you would see all of these single-cell organisms with all of their individual developments, their individual little skill sets, like the A-team or whatever, they would, sort of, <laughs> they would sort of start to band together. And so that's how you had the first multicellular organism. At some point, they just stopped being 
separate creatures. Yeah. They bonded together. And so some of them would lose some of the cellular apparatus to reproduce and be their own individual thing. That's like mitochondria is a perfect example of that, right? Yeah. The thing that produces power in the cell was originally a free agent and then joined up with us. That's why it has its own DNA. Yep. Slightly different than ours. So this is sort of like that. You're seeing something that right now lives on the outside. Kind of seems like it's a little bit of a free agent, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Kind of. But then you start looking at the paperwork of the DNA, <laughs> and you see, like, uh, you're not quite as independent as you'd like to think. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? What are you, you going to do? What are you going to do? Leave me? It becomes this analog for, like, a, a toxic relationship, right? Where the Demodex folliculorum is suddenly so codependent on this host that it, it, it can no longer see it any recognizable elements or aspects of him or herself it also brings into question too like how many animals are we right like if you start counting all the bacteria and stuff in our gut and all of these other sorts of parasites and other things that constantly live within our body right it gets into that weird trippy illusion of like well that like i was talking about earlier like what am i am i I, i'm this illusion of one cohesive static thing there's millions of little microorganisms living inside of me all the time we contain multitudes we do and these are the guys having sex on my and your face but before we move on i did want to point out the author or co-author of the study her name is alejandra perotti of the university of reading and this is like her whole bag is studying mites and insects on humans and some of her work has actually been used to help solve crimes because her labs has shown that um, certain stolen items buried for safekeeping can then be traced using mites living in soil kind of crazy right so they're freeloaders but they're also kind of rats they're rats it'll sing yeah the mite sort of follows the narrative trajectory of that guy that left home, went to college, couldn't really find a job, came back home, mm-hmm. living in parents' basement. Yep. Doing some odd jobs around the house. Like, uh, you know, he can fix a sink if there's a leak. Or <laughs> his mom's like, hey, would you go untangle the Christmas lights are up in the attic and it's just a mess up there. So there's little things they can do. But, you know, if you turn that guy loose, he's not going to make it on the outside. He's done. So the sun sets. He wakes up. And plays some Xbox. Yeah. And then every now and again, maybe he convinces somebody to come over to his place. To his little poor. His little poor. That he lives in. That's Mm -hmm. like, that's still somehow decorated like it's in the 70s. Yeah. The life of this mite is very like a 90s Gen X indie Mm -hmm. dramedy. You know what that guy living in the basement, you know what he might do once in a while if he's bored? And he had like $299 lying around. Mm, gosh, I can think of all kinds of things you could do online. He, he would uh, probably go buy himself a pair of Oculus, those VR goggles. Sure. He might find, He might go, you know, find a pair of those Oculus goggles and he might find himself inside the metaverse. The metaverse. That's right. You want to escape your circumstances into a beautiful fantasy land. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of fantasy options available to one who's playing in the ascendant metaverse. Right, this mm-hmm. world that they're creating, as we've talked about once or twice on this show. Yep, I think it's wild that so much innovation is now going into creating a virtual office, or as Mark Zuckerberg called it, the infinite office—a concept which I could didn't think is super horrifying. So dark. But you have to ask the question of: Okay, if 
we're going to be spending more and more time in the metaverse with mm-hmm. these VR goggles on our faces. What's that going to be like? I mean, you play games now for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever. And the weight of the unit, the way it's sitting on your head, like all of that stuff is going to have some effect. We obviously have not evolved to have this thing living on our face in the same way as the mites. Exactly. We're still going to suffer from some pretty predictable side effects. That's right. And that is what a study set out to figure out, Stephen. Okay. Study came out called Quantifying the Effects of Working VR for One Week. So what happened? 18 volunteers agreed to wear an Oculus headset for a week, a working week, eight hours a day with 45-minute breaks. To see yep. what would happen, Stephen. What, what what happened? Tell me. It did not go great. I, I would imagine that's. A, I wouldn't imagine it went well. But I, I want to hear how poorly it went. Right off the bat, two of them dropped out <laughs> due to nausea, wearing the thing, made them nauseated. The other sixteen reported being more frustrated, anxious, and having some eye strain. This is from an article in Insider. Quote, participants reported on average a 42% increase in their frustration levels and a 48% increase in eye strain. And on top of all that, they were more anxious by almost a fifth and overall suffered a 20% drop in well-being. It's so so ridiculous. And also, I I don't know if Business Insider was trying to be poetic here, but uh, quote Business Insider, nausea is a common side effect of virtual reality. Mm-hmm. That's such like this like ennui of our current times. Well, the question is, why would you do this anyway? What's the advantage <laughs> of spending your whole working life in VR when what it's doing is just approximating office space anyway? Why Why bother going to all the trouble of investing in the technology, having your employees wear the thing? The paper offers a few things. Primarily, it says that, quote, this direct interaction with the VR can be used to increase productivity and to control the environment, which can actually be used to decrease stress. One of the things they talk about is, like, you can use the VR to create a lovely beach setting so that the person could, instead of working at a desk, they can be, you know, looking out at some computer-generated water, maybe some dolphins swimming by. The idea being you can create whatever you want. It could be anything. Another quote benefit that the paper offered, which again seemed weirdly ironic, was it said, well, with VR, you can just create all the boundaries you want, all the partitions you want, so that workers don't get distracted by all the other stuff going on in VR. So like, you know, if there's knights and unicorns and giant <laughs> monsters rampaging around the metaverse or whatever is going to happen, like, oh, you can always put up barriers because that's yeah. what you want is to make sure that there's more opportunities to set up barriers so that you don't get distracted from your work. From the thing that you like put people in to begin with and in so doing created a problem that didn't exist that you're now solving for. Why invest in an actual cubicle when you can just create a virtual one that seems to be infinitely large and has any kind of things on it you want? To me, it seems so dark and sort of creepy because it just reeks of this promise of ergonomics and a better work environment that is really a veiled effort to get more output out of workers for less money. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you optimize their output? How can VR be used to do that? So what are the things you need? Well, you need them to be distracted less. You need them to be less stressed out by the work. 
mm-hmm. you need them to be able to focus and not be tired, right? So how do we do that? Well, and again, the paper talks about this, people like nature. We know that if you can immerse a person in nature just by having them walk through an actual physical park, you know, stress goes down, there's measurable effects on health, yeah. but that's why having parks and trees in neighborhoods is better for the people who live in those neighborhoods and why poorer neighborhoods don't have trees and that has a measurable effect on health and pollution and stuff like that. But anyway, so we know that humans plus nature still a good idea makes you feel better and so on. So the solution here is well, VR can just create virtual nature and that should at least in theory make people feel less stressed. Yeah. Of course, they're not there yet cuz the headsets, the clunkiness of the interface, the idea that the brain isn't quite used to moving in this space where your body's not moving, but mm-hmm. your perspective is changing, all of those things. All of this works counter to the promise of making a better workspace. It's not, let's bring nature into it. It's, let's fabricate something that looks like nature so that people will shut up and do their work inside of their little headsets. The creepiest part about this is how, like, in this infinite universe that contains multitudes where they really needed to test this out was in some makeshift metaverse version of something that you find in one of those soulless buildings in some business park somewhere, right? That really shows you where it's going because, hey, there's probably some costs associated with some nicer metaverse backdrops. And maybe you're also only gaining access to those nicer environments based on the merits of your work. That's right. You got to level up. You got to level up to get to that beach. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That corner office. Boy, that is true. Still could, you could not get a corner office in the fake world because. <laughs> you don't have the output. But that's true. Yeah. Like you would qualify for different settings and and different skins. You know, you could have a whole, you want to have a better, cooler avatar. Well, let's see you hit those numbers, Bruce. Exactly. Bruce. The scary part about all of this is that it's almost guaranteed we will figure this out that's why these studies are happening so that the goggles don't make you puke (laughs) (laughs) so that like all of this stuff that we're talking about it becomes a reality right it's like the mobile telephone was around in a lot of super clunky iterations for a long time until the flip phone came out and the whole thing was about how lightweight it could be and how portable it could be and then you know of course the blackberry the smartphone the personal digital assistant the iphone and now we're here this same thing is going to happen with the metaverse where you know it's going to be some barely detectable wearable tech that will transport you into this metaverse like that's going to happen almost for sure and that's what these early stages and early tests are about so that part's creepy another thing that i just was thinking about is this you know how we've talked before on this show about how you could live forever in the metaverse potentially so if all of your actions were logged someone could kind of create this avatar ai version of you that can live on in perpetuity in the metaverse right conceivably there could be some scenario when part of the terms of your employment were that all of the actions and all of that know-how that you brought to your position is logged in the metaverse, stored in a database and used to inform an AI so that even after you physically die, a company could employ you for eternity in the metaverse in the form of your AI avatar. 
Sure. We're doing it right now. We're creating yeah. the intellectual property to have a podcast after we're, you know, locked in a gulag or something. So journals will live on. There it is. What I think we're getting at that is so wild is as it becomes more comfortable to spend time in the metaverse, as you said, we'll have better technology. The glasses will be more slim and comfortable and stylish, or they'll just be implants. So we become more used to being there. We're will become less used to presumably working in regular offices, yeah. become more divorced from the real world and therefore more dependent on not just the economy that's created by the metaverse, but also the reality around that infrastructure. And in that way, we have a cautionary tale. It's our little buddy, the demo decks, who got so used to living in those pores, baby, that uh, it doesn't know any other way to be. It's stuck in the metaverse of our face. Exactly. The once mighty Demodex Follicularum, now a, uh, a shadow of its former self, <laughs> having become yeah. so comforted by the facilities of our pores and the oils that we secrete and the uh, sultry environment that we're providing for them every night so that they can continue to mate and thrive microscopically on our face. And yeah, they lost a little bit of themselves. So will that be us? Will that be us in the metaverse? I don't know, 5, 10, 50 years from now? Those pores are just like cubicles, man. The cubicles, just like pores on the face of a giant virtual uh, Mark Zuckerberg, maybe. Who knows? You, uh, you zoom out and this entire conversation has been taking place on the face of Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> It's a question we all ask ourselves. Will the sun ever set on the face of Mark Zuckerberg? Well, not in the metaverse version, unless he wants it to. Yeah. It'll be his face in long lines of the major boulevard of the metaverse. That's right. Maybe in 70 years, we'll be celebrating the jubilee of the metaverse from within the metaverse. <laughs> and then you'll be like, hey, what if we called this the jube? And people will be like, no, no, still, no. no. Get knocked back down. <laughs> It's just four walls for you this week, buddy. Four virtual walls. Yeah. Well, until then. We are still biologically ourselves mm -hmm. doing biologically this extremely organic real world show called Journos. Yep. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Steven Jackson. We'll see you next time. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs> <laughs>